Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Canadian Breakpoint, a Canadian infectious disease podcast by infectious disease physicians. I'm Summer Stewart, here with Dr. Rapina Pierwall, Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist from Saskatoon. For this episode, Dr. Pierwall will discuss baloxavir in anticipation of the 2021 flu season. Dr. Pierwall. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, The Canadian Breakpoint. Today, we'll be discussing baloxavir, which is an antiviral that was recently approved by Health Canada in February 2020 for acute uncomplicated influenza infections in those 12, and 12 years of age and older. I wanted to review this topic for multiple reasons, one being that our last influenza season was very different here in Canada and probably globally due to many factors, likely an increase in flu vaccine uptake versus universal masking. That's been in effect. Now, as many of us are aware, this winter season, respiratory season may look more similar to our normal respiratory season with some increased influenza cases. And therefore I thought it was very timely for us to discuss a new antiviral that was on the market, Biloxivir. And therefore that's what we'll be talking about today. Um, before I do start talking a little bit more about Biloxivir itself, I do want to mention that this is an informational podcast. I do not have any financial disclosures and um, am not endorsing this product. So today our objective will be to learn about Biloxivir, also known as Zofluza. We will talk about the properties of Biloxivir, the indications, contraindications, and then in the end, we will compare it to our conventional antiviral, also known as uh, also Tamivir or Tamiflu. So starting off with Biloxivir, Biloxivir marboxyl is the active ingredient. So the product name is Zofluza and the route of administration is oral. Um, when we will be prescribing or using this as a prescription medication, it comes in a 20 milligram and a 40 milligram tablet. So in terms of dosing for us clinicians, if your patient is between 40 to 80 kilos, then two 20 milligram tablets for a total dose of 40 milligrams. If they're greater than 80 kilos, then we're looking at two 40 milligram tablets for a total dose of 80 milligrams. Fortunately, it's a single dose regimen that's given within 48 hours of symptom onset. Now going on to the indications as were listed in the products monograph, it's indicated for the treatment of uncomplicated influenza, as we mentioned in patients that are 12 years of age and older who have been symptomatic for no more than 48 hours and who are otherwise healthy or at high risk of developing influenza complications. There's no clinical evidence for efficacy outside of influenza A and B, so not recommended for other viruses. And again, there's no efficacy or safety that's been established in those that begin therapy or treatment after the 48 hour mark. Also, there's no efficacy or safety in treatment of influenza in patients requiring hospitalization. So those would, you would encounter more of your complicated influenza cases. Um, and also kind of different from our also Tamifir antiviral medication. There's no efficacy here with Biloxivir in preventing influenza. Now going on to the mechanism of action. So Biloxivir marboxyl is a prodrug that's converted by hydrolysis to its active metabolite, Biloxivir. This active form exerts the anti-influenza activity. 
So it actually acts on the cap-dependent endonucleus, which is an influenza virus-specific enzyme, and actually the PA or polymerase acidic subunit of the viral RNA polymerase complex. So really the way it works is it inhibits the transcription of influenza virus genomes, resulting in inhibition of influenza virus replication. Looking at the pharmacokinetics of this drug, veloxavir, the terminal elimination half-life of veloxavir after your single oral administration dose is 79.1 hours, and it's mainly excreted via the fecal route in humans and small amounts in the urine. So obviously as clinicians, I think it's really important for us to talk about efficacy and also safety. And so based on the monograph, they did discuss two clinical trials that we're going to talk about right now, um, but really basing it on that there was significant reduction in the time to alleviation or time to improvement of influenza symptoms with sofluza compared to the placebo group. So the two clinical trials, so the first trial was a phase three randomized double-blind multicenter placebo and active controlled study designed to evaluate the efficacy and safety of veloxavir compared with the placebo arm, arm or oseltamivir in healthy adults or adolescents. That was your 12 to 64 years of age, weighing 40 kilos. All that had acute, uncomplicated influenza. So really the eligibility for this trial was that they had to have an auxiliary temperature of 38 degrees Celsius or above one respiratory symptom that was moderate or greater in severity and one stomach symptom like headache, fever, chills of moderate or greater severity. All patients in this study were treated within 48 hours of symptom onset as per the indications and dosing uh, was 40 or 80 milligrams of Zofluza, uh, or conventional dosing for Tamiflu, and then there was the placebo arm. So really the design of the study was to, to do self-assessment, which would require to assess their symptoms as none, mild, moderate, or severe, twice daily in the first nine days, and then once daily up to day 14. So the primary efficacy endpoint was time to alleviation of symptoms. And that was defined when all symptoms were assessed as none or mild for a duration of at least 21 and a half hours. So this specific study had an N of 1400 patients that were randomized. The intention to treat infected population included over a thousand patients with PCR confirmed influenza. I think it was quite interesting for me to look at the predominant strains in this study. And it was mostly influenza type A, H3 subtype, that was around 88%. And then coming in second was influenza B type at around 10%. And then with the smallest number was influenza A, H1N1. It was also notably uh, mentioned in this trial that 75% of the patients enrolled did not receive their influenza vaccine. Now, when looking at the primary endpoint, which was that time to alleviation of symptoms, a statistically significant improvement was seen with the Zofluza group when compared to the placebo arm, but there was no statistical significance that was seen in any difference in time to alleviation of symptoms 
when we compare the Zofluza group to the Elsa-Tamavir group. As for the secondary endpoint, which is time to resolution of fever, it was also noted that it was faster in the Zofluza group compared to the placebo arm with a median time with the Zofluza group around 24 and a half hours compared to the patients that were in the placebo group, which was up to 42 hours. Now, as mentioned previously, it was two trials that were discussing the efficacy and safety. So the second trial was a phase three randomized double-blinded multicenter placebo and active control study to evaluate efficacy and safety, again, of the oral dose of Zofluza compared to the placebo arm or also Tamavir in adolescents and adult patients older than 12 years of age now with influenza who are at high risk of developing influenza related complications. So the patients that were included under the high risk are kind of what we see in our probably clinical practice, but most commonly was represented in this study was underlying asthma, chronic lung disease at around 40%, diabetes at around 20%, and then followed by heart disease and obesity around the 12% range. What the patients that were excluded were if they had cancer in the last five years, untreated HIV, or treated HIV with a low CD4 count of below 350, immune suppressed patients following transplant. So really anybody really in your immunocompromised state. Now, most patients in this clinical trial also had not received their influenza vaccine. Eligibility was very similar to the previous study. And the number of patients that were randomized were over 2,100 and over 1,100 of them had confirmed diagnosis of PCR at the study entry. The predominant strains here were Influenza A, H3 subtype, very similarly, but there was more of a 50-50 distribution here with influenza B uh, coming in second. And when looking at the primary endpoint here, which is time to improvement of symptoms, there was, again, statistical significance for the Zofluza group compared to the placebo group. But again, no significant improvement difference that was noted in the Zofluza group and comparing it to the Tamavir group. So very similar to our previous trial that we just discussed. In terms of the secondary endpoint, which is resolution of fever, fever was reduced more rapidly in the Zofluza group compared to the placebo group. So I think all in all, looking at both the healthy subjects in the first trial and the high risk subjects in the second trial, as we just discussed, the Zofluza group for both their primary and secondary endpoint uh, was did better than um, the placebo group, I think is what um, mainly I took from this study. And it was also, so as we mentioned in the second trial, they were looking at high risk patients who have a high risk of developing or higher risk of developing influenza related complications. And so they specifically mentioned in the monograph, the overall incidence of influenza related complication was around 3% in the Zofluza group compared to the placebo group, which was up to 10%. So that was another important measure. And really they looked at, they had a lower incidence in these patients in the Zofluza group, lower incidence of bronchitis and sinusitis. However, there was no significant differences in some of our higher risk complications or uh, more complicated uh, um, presentations, such as 
death, hospitalization, hepatitis media, and pneumonia. So I think that overall summed up the efficacy of Bloxavir. Um, in terms of, uh, as clinicians, I think it's also really important to know the safety. And so looking at what the monograph stated, uh, safety was submitted and reviewed by Health Canada and safety and efficacy had been established for children that are older than 12 years of age and weighing greater than 40 kilos. So it was not well established outside of that age range and outside of um, that weight. In terms of pregnancy and breastfeeding, so definitely there are no well-controlled studies in this population, which is usually the case in most of the drugs that um, get released um, on our market. However, um, the current recommendations in your pregnant patients or those that are breastfeeding, there's no kind of um, well-controlled studies, as we mentioned. So the current recommendation is that we currently should not be used during pregnancy unless there's really a potential benefit that justifies the risk to the fetus. When they did look at higher doses of veloxavir, in, for instance, like pregnant rabbits, at six times higher dose than what we would be giving to humans, they did see that there was maternal toxicity leading to miscarriages and an increased incident in minor skeletal abnormalities, but this was not obviously seen in some of the other, um, uh, subjects that were, uh, used. And then in pregnancy, we just don't have those studies right now in terms of any contraindications. So avoiding it in those that ever have any hypersensitivity to this drug or any ingredient in the formulation, uh, such as anaphylaxis, urticaria, angioedema. Um, I think it was important for the part of the monogram that mentioned, kind of dosing considerations, you want to avoid giving it with any calcium beverages. So pretty much all in all avoid dairy products, anything that could uh, combine with the medication, um, that would make it more, uh, or make it ineffective and acids are on the list, uh, oral supplements like calcium, iron, magnesium, selenium, or zinc as well. And some laxatives that have polyvalent cations. So definitely taking that into consideration, especially for our pharmacy folks that are um, helping us prescribe this medication. They also mentioned in the monograph that it was not well studied in renal impairment patients and those with severe hepatic disease, but currently there are no change in dose recommendations. Um, so no, no dose changes required for both renal and hepatic impairment. In terms of side effects, so in the clinical trials themselves, they saw some mild side effects, the GI upset, which is a really common manifestation that was seen in those patients, including nausea and diarrhea, um, but also developing other milder symptoms of bronchitis, sinus infection, or headache. And when looking at it more so in the post-marketing adverse events, anaphylaxis, angioedema, urticaria, and rash were seen. Uh, vomiting, bloody diarrhea, melanin, ischemic colitis. However, as we're aware, these are reported voluntarily from a population of an uncertain size. So really can't reliably estimate their frequency so much that what we can do in the clinical trials. And it seems like in the clinical trials, really the milder symptoms were more predominant. However, with age, nausea was also a predominant finding. So that's something to consider in your patients when prescribing it. And obviously with any 
and other medications, if there is any severe reaction, you should always counsel your patients to stop taking the medication and speak to the healthcare provider. So there was uh, an interesting part in the monograph that was brought up in terms of resistance or development of resistance and treatment emergent amino acid substitution resistance that have something that they've been noticing uh, in the U.S. So it, since FDA approval in the U.S., which is back in 2018, they are seeing that. Now more so in vitro, in clinical isolates, really it's the treatment emergent amino acid substitution and the PA protein, which showed mainly for influenza A virus isolates that there's a tenfold reduced susceptibility, um, but not so much or not as high in the influenza B group, but still representing a five-fold reduced susceptibility to block severe in the clinical trials in the healthy subjects, this mutation at this, at this amino acid substitution position was seen in about 10% of the Zofusa group and the high risk patients, about 5% of the patients that were seen had this mutation detected. So just something to consider when we are looking into prescribing. So kind of the evidence or the supporting kind of recommendations that were given in regards to that was that health professionals should consider available information on the influence of virus drug susceptibility patterns and treatment effects when deciding whether to use Zofluza, if that's an option. Um, and so, um, kind of pretty much wanted to sum up this episode by comparing Tamiflu to block severe, because I think most of us are quite aware of the properties of Tamiflu or also Tamivir versus block severe, but really doing a side-by-side comparison can sometimes help, especially because these are the two antivirals that are on the market. Most of us may not be familiar with block severe because it was just released prior to the COVID pandemic. And since we didn't see much influenza activity in our last respiratory season, a lot of us probably did not prescribe this medication. Um, however, we may be seeing a different respiratory season coming forward in these winter months. And so, so we'll just end this podcast by talking a little bit about Tamiflu versus Biloxivir, some of the properties that stood out to me and will help me as well in my clinical practice. So when we talk about cost, I think it's always an important, uh, topic to bring up when we're comparing medications and when we're prescribing medications. So both of them are prescription drugs. Tamiflu is less costly, whereas Biloxivir is more expensive. So that's something to consider. In terms of the mechanism of action, Tamiflu, as we're all aware, stops the viral copies from leaving your cells to preventing you from becoming more sick. Whereas Biloxivir, as we just learned, stops the influenza virus itself from actually making copies of itself. So the viral replication. Now, both of them, it's advised to take within 48 hours of feeling sick. Um, and I think as a pediatrician, it was actually quite important to me to know that Biloxifer is only approved in those older than 12 years of age and greater than 40 kilos. Uh, whereas Tamiflu and, and, and what I see in my clinical practice as well as we can give it as young as two weeks old. And not only that, but we can use Tamiflu or also Tamivir as a treatment and prevention agent, whereas Biloxifer, as we just learned is only for indicated for treatment. And just kind of remembering that Tamiflu can be given for your complicated patients and is recommended, whereas Biloxivir is more probably in your outpatient setting where you have an acute, uncomplicated influenza-positive patient, maybe somebody who is higher risk 
for developing complications or even in our pediatric populations in that adolescent group. If you have a patient where you can detect them within the first 48 hours of feeling sick and can give them a single dose probably helps with compliance that it's a single dose as, as opposed to Tamiflu where you're taking it for five days, twice a day dosing. That's probably the conventional dosing. Now I did want to kind of touch on the topic of antiviral use, um, in general, because in the pediatric population, we often kind of shy away from giving antivirals, especially Tamiflu, which has been on the market for a long time. And recently in the pediatric journal, there was a study that was released by impact network, which is a pediatric hospital, national active surveillance network, uh, which is actually a really good paper that sums up kind of the antiviral use in the pediatric population. So it's only looking at from zero to 16 years of age and was comparing our use in 2010 to 2011 compared to 2018 to 2019. Now, overall our use of antivirals despite the current recommendations from Canadian Pediatric Society and the American Academy of Pediatrics stating that antiviral agents are recommended for influenza, especially in patients that are hospitalized patients, even if they've are past that 48 hour mark. Um, however, our overall use in our pediatric patients, when looking at the over 7,500 cases, we were only at around a use rate of about 41%. So definitely could be variable among centers. Um, different centers have different abilities for testing. And those that can test sooner obviously had higher rates. Um, so something to consider. So just coming into this respiratory season and likely our influenza season, that's something to consider. Um, and when they looked at the antiviral use rate in these pediatric hospitals, comparing it from the 2010 to the 2018, 2019 data, we did see that the overall use had increased now, whether that's again, because of more testing, um, or more complicated patients, uh, for many reasons. So it went from 20% up to 60%, but I just wanted to kind of bring that up because, Definitely there are benefits and a lot of observational studies that have been seen in children and adults that are hospitalized that suggest clinical benefit of antiviral use. Now, whether that's decrease in length of stay, decrease in healthcare costs and decrease in our ICU um, and overall mortality, morbidity. So something to consider um, for us as clinicians as well. Um, and, and knowing kind of the indications for each of the antivirals that are available to us on the market, I think was uh, one of the first steps for me, uh, just knowing and learning about blocks of year, because it was something that I definitely have not, um, encountered in my clinical practice, just kind of remembering that now, obviously we detoured a little bit more of talking about hospitalized patients, whereas Tamiflu would be the indication there and Biloxivir is only used in an acute, uncomplicated setting. Now, finally, just what we have on formulary. So in Tamiflu with Tamiflu, it's a liquid and tablet that's available. And that's probably more beneficial for us pediatricians out there. Um, in terms of Biloxivir, there's no liquid formulation that's available, but they do have a tablet form, unfortunately cannot be crushed. So considering that in your acute outpatient setting, um, might be an important 
uh, may weigh in your decision when prescribing either of these antiviral agents. Definitely with Tamiflu, there was less side effects as we're quite aware with pretty safe drug, less side effects. Uh, usually the side effects are nausea, vomiting, which get better with food. So always counsel your patients regarding that. And then in the blocks of your group, we discuss some of the side effects again, nausea, GI upset were predominant, um, but we're likely maybe encountering more side effects in that, um, with that agent compared to Tamiflu. So that is basically what I wanted to discuss today. Um, and as usual, uh, we are very grateful to have this podcast up and running. Uh, definitely would like everyone to reach out to us via email and let us know what you're interested in listening to. I would love to hear your thoughts, your comments on any of the episodes or any future episodes. If you would personally like to come on to the podcast and discuss an important infectious disease microbiology topic, please do let us know. And uh, thank you. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Dr. Pierwall, as well as Verity Pharmaceuticals for the generous sponsorship. Follow us on Twitter at CA Breakpoint and email us at thecanadianbreakpoint at gmail.com to suggest infectious disease topics or discussions you'd like to hear. We look forward to seeing you again at The Canadian Breakpoint.